to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find Ecclesiastes 3 on page 657. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. This is the very word of the living God. Please give it your full attention as it's read to you this morning. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out What God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will endure forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift that is open before us in your word. We thank you that you have not left us without your truth, but that you have not only given it, but you have preserved it and you have delivered it to us in our own languages. Oh God, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, Hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We confess, O God, how often we are guilty of being hearers only. We pray that today we would be doers as well. That we would not walk away from your word unchanged, but that where the water of your word hits the soils of our hearts, where the thistles of our sin thrive, O God, that you would cause by your grace 
the Cyprus to dwell, that you would change us. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, the text that is before us this morning is one of the most popular or best known scriptures, perhaps in all of the Bible, both to people inside of the church as well as outside of the church. And while it's one of the most well-known passages in the scriptures, I also think it's one of the most misunderstood in all the scriptures, both by people inside of the church as well as outside of the church. And one of the reasons why it is so well known is due in part to the song that many of you will be humming for the rest of the day, Turn, 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 a song by the birds that is really just an adaptation of Ecclesiastes 1-8 to with a a very curious final line that isn't in Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8. But but that song really popularized this text, so many people know it, but it's popular for another reason. It, along with Psalm 23, is probably the most frequently preached text at funerals, both by people inside of the church and outside of the church. You might say, well, why is it one of the most frequently preached texts at a funeral? We get Psalm 23. We, We want to know that God is our shepherd and will care for us. Well, many request, even if they don't know it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, they'll say, can you, can you preach from the place in the Bible that says it, that there is a time to die and that there is a time to mourn and weep? Maybe they don't even know much beyond that, but they're, but they're aware that somewhere in the Bible it says that there is a time where man is set to die and it's okay to weep and to mourn. So it's been popularized for those uh, two reasons. And I said it's one of the most misunderstood. And what I mean by that is this text is often presented as a list of prescriptions, uh, of things that you and I are supposed to do, a- a- as a laundry list of sorts of things that we say, okay, well, there's a, there, life is just kind of chaotic, it, it, it's vapor, it's passing, it's temporary, and so when occasions come along where it's appropriate to speak, well, you should, you should discern that and you should speak, or when the occasion is the occasion to be quiet, you should be quiet, or you should hate, or you should love, and so we view it as kind of a, a laundry list of ways to discern and respond to life. That's usually how it's taught. And while I don't disagree that we should be discerning in life, and we should know when to speak, and we should know when to not speak, and that difference is very hard uh, for many of us, I don't think that's why Solomon wrote it. I don't think Kohelet penned these words to give us a, a list of prescriptions of what we ought to be doing, though we believe in that. It's a right doctrine, and just perhaps the wrong text. Kohelet gives us a description of what is. And that may not sound very different to you at the onset, but, but let me read to you from uh, another pastor, another commentator, when he says this famous passage does not contain marching orders for us. It is no agenda. Rather, it is a description of God's determinations. The passage before us is not as much about what man does, not nearly as much about what man does, as it is about what God 
determines, about what God does. This passage before us is about the sovereign rule and reign of God. It's, it's about that strangely unpopular word in Christian circles. It's about the sovereignty of God. And I, I will confess up front, I, I sort of know and I sort of don't know why we have a hard time with that issue. If God is not in control, if the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, omnipresent God of the universe, if He isn't in control, then we're really in a tight spot as a species and as a people. If God's not God, who is? And this passage says, well, He is sovereign. He does rule. He does reign. Let me tell you how. In Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2, Kohelet has mainly looked at the actions of man. He has examined wisdom and folly, and he has tested his heart with pleasure, and he has discerned and thought through uh, why we work and why we get up in the morning and what's the point of life. And he's really looked at life from our vantage point. And a shift happens at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, he, he gets to kind of that climax at the end of the first section, and he says, I, this, this is a piece of the answer. All of life is a gift. And it's a gift that comes from God, the giver of all gifts. And if we're to have any right, proper worldview that can deal with reality, we have to start there. God gives gifts. You have breath in your lungs today because God gave it to you. You have food on your table because God gave it to you. And He gave it to you to be enjoyed by Him. Not to become an idol and not to be the source of our identity and then to not be the fountain of all of pleasure and, and worth in the world, but to be received as a gift, to be enjoyed as a gift, and to rebound and resound with praise back to Him for all of His good gifts. And so you can see Kohelet's eyes turn from his pursuits up to God and says, now we got to start here. God is the giver. What kind of God is it that gives these gifts? Well, that's described in chapter 3. The sovereign ruler of the world. This poem, verses 1 through 8, is a poem, and then he shifts out of that, out of that poem in verse 9. But that beginning poem reminds us of a truth that I trust we all know, but I bet we all forget. The truth that there is a God... You aren't him and I'm not him. And that he alone is sovereign. Now I I doubt any of us this morning are under any illusions that, that we are God. But how often do we begin to think that we are, as that poem says, the, the captains of our fates. Right? That we're the masters, that that we are some miniature sovereign over our own life and that our hand is on the rudder of life and fate and we captain our boat through these stormy waters. Coelet says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you who you're dealing with in God. So I want to look at this text under three headings this morning. Uh, The first is this. We want to look at the scope of God's sovereignty in verses 1 through 8. We want to look at the scope, the, the breadth, the greatness of His sovereignty. Uh, 
This text shows, as Walt Kaiser rightly says, that God alone is in charge of nature and history. And you can see and begin to unfold this idea for us in verse 1. For everything there is a season and for every time and a time for every matter under heaven. The right way of understanding of what Kohelet is saying here is that there are appointed seasons for everything. There are definitive or defined or prescribed times for every matter that happens under heaven. Kohelet is not telling us this morning that, you know what, life is chaos, life is vapor, life is really hard to understand, and so in this kind of mess of life, the few fleeting days of your life, occasions will come and go and take advantage of those, and you really don't know what you're going to get in life, so when it comes, deal with it appropriately. That's not what he's saying here. The sense is not that chaos and random occasions rule. No, the sense is that God is the one, in fact, the only one who appoints the times, appoints the seasons. To have an appointed time, you have to have one who's appointing it. To have a defined times, one has to set the borders on these things, and that one is not us, it's God. And we will see that explained in the poem that is before us in Verses 2 through 8, you'll find 14 different couplets. Words that work together to help describe uh, the vast array or, or, or all of the human experience. You'll find 14 couplets that are filled with words that I believe are intentionally broad or intentionally vague. And the goal there is to, to grab all of life. You know, we, we use this kind of language all the time. Or we see it in the scripture as well. You, if you speak of, well, you know, in all of heaven and earth, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it means in everything. If you were to say um, that in every occasion, you know, on, on the land or on the sea, well, you're saying, well, in, in every place. And that's what Kohelet is doing this morning. So I will explain some of them. <laughs> We'll be here a long time if I explain all of them. So I will explain some of them, and I feel like many of them are very self-explanatory. Look where he starts in verse 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. It starts by saying that your first breath was a season and a time that was appointed by God. And your last breath has already been written in his book. None of us here this morning thought before we were born, you know, July 11th is a good day to be born. Uh, Now, I know moms who are far into their third trimester or have gone past their alleged due date, they speak of the baby as having a a vote that is cast in this. They think of, you know, this baby hasn't come out yet. And when he decides, well, no, we understand what they're saying. We don't determine those things. Before the foundations of the world were ever set in stone, God determined and wrote in his book, as it were, when each of us would gasp our first breath, and he determined when we would breathe our last breath, and in between those two, he is the sovereign over every breath in between. 
the sovereignty of God encompasses all of human life. Job 14 verse 5 says, Man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits and he cannot pass them. We like to think that we're in control. We like to think that we determine how long we live. We like to think that we are the sovereigns of our life. And the scripture comes along and says, that's just simply not true. God determines the first and last breath and every breath in between. The second half of verse 2, there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Again, you'll begin to see the broadness of these words. Uh, Carrots are planted. And nations, according to the scriptures, are planted. You harvest your garden somewhere in the fall, and nations are also uprooted. And so, Kohelet is saying, whether you are Assyria or corn, both get planted in due season, and you will be uprooted in season. So it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about when we plant our garden or dig up our garden, or when Rome comes to power, and when Rome falls from power, both are determined by God. God is the appointer of the seasons of planting and of harvesting. I know we don't think of God having a sovereignty that encompasses the lifespan of vegetables, but how else do you read verse 2? We think, well, I planted the garden. I mean, isn't that my act? Well, you didn't cause the sun to rise. Did you call spring forth? Did you demand that the summer sun shine and that the roots of your plants grow and that the soil give nutrition and that fall would come? No, you didn't do, you didn't do any of that. Who did? Well, God did that. And He is the captain and the sovereign over all things. Verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. There are times where wounds are inflicted. There are times when wounds are treated Both are under God's sovereign view. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time where demolition happens, and that's not always a negative thing. There's times where it's said of Israel that Israel broke down the idols that were in the land. There's a good time of breaking down. There's a bad time of breaking down, too. Both are appointed by God. There's a time where we destroy houses and build houses. Verse 4, there's a time where we weep and a time where we laugh. It's as though, Kohel says, you want to know the specificity of the sovereignty of God. The tears of sorrow have been appointed by God and the tears of laughter he also determines. And while crying and laughing often look similar to us, God determined them. He set their boundaries. There's a time to mourn and a a time to dance. These are emotional responses to situations that are outside of our control. Very few of us say, you know what, I think next Thursday I'll cry. No. You cry when your life is coming apart at the seams and something precious or someone precious to you is in danger or hurt or killed. That's when we cry. Now, how much sovereignty did we exert over that situation? Well, none. 
How much sovereign do, do we set over that friend who uh, tells that uh, joke or, or points out that situation so we, we cry in our laughter so hard uh, that our stomachs hurt? We didn't do any of that. These are appointed seasons by God. It says there's a time to dance. As Baptists, we don't believe that. I'm joking. Some houses, there are many appointed times for dancing, especially if you have a six-year-old and a two-year-old like I do. There are many appointed seasons of dancing. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. It says there are times when foreign military powers roll over you, tear down your walls and take the stones that were your defense and throw them on your field and destroy the food that was going to be on your kid's table. And there are other times that God appoints where you go out and take those same stones, clear a land so that, God, so that that land can provide food for your family, and you stack up stones to protect you again. Both of those very different scenarios are under God's sovereign control. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain. There are seasons of singleness and marriage. There are seasons where relationships are sweet. And there are times where relationships are strained. Both are under the sovereignty of God. There's a time to seek, verse 6. A time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. There are times where we gather. There are times where we declutter. There's times to tear. Verse 7, a time to sow. There are occasions in your life where, in the day back when Kohelet is writing, where when something terrible happened, you, you would tear your clothing to show great mourning and sorrow. And there's that proper time of mourning because of the circumstance of life. And then there's the time where you sew your shirt back up and move on from life. A time of tearing and a time of sowing. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Are you saying that God's sovereignty even impacts when people say words and when they don't? Yes. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Are you saying that even the, not just interpersonal relationships we have with people, but the, the relationships nations have with each other, are you saying that that too is under God's sovereignty? Yes, it is. God's sovereignty encompasses everything. I was told once, I was having a conversation with a young man who himself was a professing Christian, and in a kind of a moment of frustration, he told me, you know what, God just, God is not a micromanager. He's not. I hopefully graciously, responded with Proverbs 16.33. The, the lot, the, the die, is cast into the lap, and its every decision is from the Lord. I don't know his definition of micromanagement, but I, I believe that. I believe that every decision is from God. And, and there are others who would say, well, okay, I, I get the sovereignty of God in part. I get that God is over the good things that happen. The good things that happen are under God's sovereignty. The bad things that happen, well, that's outside of his sovereignty. In fact, I heard just this week, do not repeat this, <laughs> uh, that, well, God is sovereign, but he's not in control. And his point was this, when the good things happen, that's God. When the bad things happen, that's the devil. And he would even say, when people die, 
that was outside of the realm of God. This is not a rare view, my friends. So is God sovereign over the good and the difficult? Amos 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer is no. Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create calamity, I am the Lord who does these things. All of life. The good and the difficult. The bright, colorful threads and the dark ones come from God. I don't know how else to explain these verses. There is a God. We are not Him, and He alone is sovereign. And that truth, that doctrine, that, that theology that comes to us from all over the pages of Scripture, that messes with Kohelet's question. That impacts a question that we've been trying to ask throughout this whole book. Why do I labor? And, that, and that's exactly where Kohelet goes. So secondly, if we've noted first the scope of God's sovereignty, now let's look secondly at the... Um, Effects of it, or the consequences of God's sovereignty. The consequences of God's sovereignty. Doctrine has consequences. Doctrine impacts things. And the doctrine of God's sovereignty does. So, Kyle repeats the question of chapter 1, verse 3. He repeats the question of chapter 2, verse 22. He says yet again for the third time in, in this uh, book, why does man then work? And that's where he says at the end of uh, or in verse 9, he gets done with this beautiful poem, and it's so abrupt that it's almost with frustration. He says, all right, let me ask it again. What gain does the worker have in all of his toil?" This has a bearing on our question, knowing that God is sovereign. And I want you to listen very carefully at this point. Knowing God is sovereign does not answer all of our questions. And that might surprise some of you. Knowing that God is sovereign does not answer all of our questions. If it did, Ecclesiastes would end here. It doesn't. There's... However many more chapters, nine more chapters. It does not answer all of our questions. Even with such bold and clear declarations as we find at the beginning of uh, verses of this chapter, establishing God's sovereignty, the question still remains. What about toil? What is the point of life? He says in verse 10 that he has seen the business that God has given to man. There's a lot of questions and, and, and arguing over what is meant by, what is this business given to man? And some would look back and say, well, it's, it's the content of verses 1 through 8. I, I actually think it looks forward. I think verse 10 and 11 are, are not to be separated. God has given a business. God has given something to man to keep him occupied. Verse 11 we find two, I think, of the, of the biggest statements, I'm tempted to say, in all of the Old Testament, certainly in this book, two of the most astounding verses. And the first of them is this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. The sense is 
that, that of appropriateness. That everything is fitting. Everything fits and is appropriate right where God put it. And it, it fits so well, it, it is so appropriate that it can be described none other than beautiful. Now, why would I say that that is a bold, astounding, one of the most astounding verses that I've read in the Scriptures? I say it's astounding because we live in a fallen world where many things that we see with our eyes and experience in our lives, we don't think are beautiful. Let me ask you, when was the last time you got stuck in traffic and you said, Behold, beauty. When was the last time someone cut you off and stole that parking spot? And you said, you know, in this time, like that happened, it was beautiful. We don't. And we can, and we can laugh and say when our car breaks down, at the most inopportune time, behold, God is sovereign here. And we can laugh at some of those things, but there are points in our life that aren't funny. When the disease sticks around, it's hard to see the beauty in that. When a child dies, it's hard to see the beauty in that. When something that you have been pursuing for decades crumbles and burns in a night, it's hard to see the beauty in that. That's the tension that Kohelet wants us to come face to face with. It should astound us to read. Everything is beautiful in its time. And, that's, and that statement doesn't stand on its own. He pairs it with another almost equally astounding statement. God has also put eternity into man's heart. So these two things go together. Everything is beautiful in the appointed time that God has determined for it. And man has been given this thing called eternity in the heart. And a, kind of a shorter answer to what is eternity in the heart. It's a sense that God puts within man. And I don't think it's unique to Christians. I think it's given man, saved and unsaved. Both know that in this life of vapor, in the midst of the life that Solomon says is marked by heaven over and over and over again, in this vaporous temporary life where death is a certainty and monotony is maddening, in the middle of that kind of a life, God has put something in each person that says there is more than this. There's more than, than life and death. There, there's a bigger picture. There are things that aren't temporary. There are things that are eternal. And even though they say we are the and or the, the descendants of fish that crawled out of the ocean and our brains are nothing but fizzing bottles of chemistry, they don't live like that. And they don't live like that because they know within them there is a big picture. And, and for some way, and maybe they can't even articulate it, somehow my life fits into this big picture and all of these things somehow work. And whether they call it fate or they call it karma or they call it luck or they call it by a multitude of names, somehow they know. And that was given to them 
by God. Now look at the result that it has. It's given with a purpose. Middle of verse 11. Yet. So that they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Kohelet says, is there eternity in the heart? Yes. Does man know there's more than this? Yes. Does he, he want to, if we use the puzzle analogy again, does he, he know that there's a puzzle and that these fit together? Yes. Does he know how they fit together? By no means whatsoever. No, he doesn't. In fact, he is so wired by God that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God is so wired, man, that in this vaporous life, we cannot answer all the questions. We don't get all the answers. Even though we know that there is more. Does sovereignty and, and the belief in that beautiful doctrine, does it answer some of our questions? Yes, it does. If you were to ask me, what is God doing? I would say, well, the big picture, the big picture that Scripture gives us is that God is working all things together for our good, His glory, and they all march according to the counsels of His perfect will. That's the big picture, what God is doing. Everything can and does work for the good of His people, work for the glory of His name, and march in accordance with His perfect will. That's what Scripture says. That is the answer to the big, what is God doing? And then if you were to ask me, well, how does this disease fit in that? I'd say, I have no idea. I have no idea. If you were to ask me why some of the terrible things that happen in this world happen, I would say, I don't know how that piece fits. I can tell you it does. I just can't tell you how. Solomon is... Far, far from uh, giving us easy answers. He doesn't come and say, you know what, the answer to everything is God's sovereign, deal with it. He's not up for easy answers. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. Does he believe that that answers every question in life? No. We know there's a puzzle. We know the pieces fit. But so many times in our life, we have no idea how. And if we could back up and look at the front of verse 11 again and consider this. So many times in our life, we look at the events and say, I don't see the beauty. I do believe that on the other side of this vaporous life, the other side of death, when with eternal eyes... And standing with our Savior, perhaps we will be given a glimpse back on the fabric of our life. And while we didn't see the beauty here, we will say, my God, I see it now. You do all things well, and it was beautiful. It was. I didn't get it then. 
I get it now. I see the beauty, oh God, now that I see the big picture. But in this vaporous life, we we live life under the sun, or you could say under the tapestry of what God is doing. And so we see dark threads and knots, and we don't see a pattern whatsoever. And we say, God, I I see the dark threads, as well as some of the, the light ones and the bright ones, but I see knots and dark threads, and God, I don't know how how or why this is happening. And when we see the top of the tapestry on the other side of death, we'll see, oh God, it was beautiful in its time. And those dark threads that were so hard for me to bear, oh God, you used them and you wove them into a plan that was for my good and it did glorify you and it marched in accordance with your perfect will. It's in those moments, friends, that faith finds her voice most clearly. It's in those moments that faith says, I cannot see what God is doing, but this I know. I can trust Him with my life, and I can trust Him with the greatest events of my life. I don't have to know how it fits together. I don't have to know how it is that this is for my good, and how it is that this illness that doesn't go away works to my glory. I don't have to know, but I know this. My God is sovereign, and He will work it out, and that for me is enough for now. That's the tenacity of the faith that God gives to His people. This begins to hit at the heart of what Ecclesiastes is driving at. Faith in a world marked by the curse. Faith in a world where we don't see the answers, but we know the one who does. Christians throughout the church's history have captured this beautifully in the hymn that we will close with later by an astounding hymn writer, William Cooper. He put it this way, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Cooper knew more than most that you don't get all the answers in life. So how do we respond to this? We've seen the scope of His sovereignty. We've seen some of the implications of His sovereignty. Thirdly, let's look at life in light of God's sovereignty. Life in light of God's sovereignty. And look where Kohelet takes this. After he has said, you don't get all the answers at the end of verse 11, he says in verse 12, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful to do good as long as they live. Again, he repeats the same language he used in chapter 2, verse 22. It's, it's not a diminutive, it's a superlative. He's not saying, hey, the, the best you can have in life, I mean, it's rough, but the best, as good as it gets. No, he's saying the, the best, the good, the pure, the, the, the answer that we're striving for is, is this. God is sovereign. Rejoice. Isn't that what he says in verse 12? I perceive this is nothing better. Be joy-filled. 
if God's sovereignty isn't producing joy in your life, go back and make sure you have a proper view of his sovereignty and that you're applying it rightly. Rejoice. You're not in control. God is. And you don't know how the puzzle goes together, but God does. Rejoice, and he doesn't just stop there, but do good. You'll see Solomon here has a proper view of God's sovereignty. He doesn't say, hey, God's sovereign, I'm off the hook. Human accountability, human um, being, um, there's a word I'm looking for that I'm not finding, that we are held responsible for our actions in our lives is not negated by God's sovereignty. Otherwise, Solomon makes no sense here. Rejoice and do good. Obedience and joy too often are separated in our mind. Well, we can be happy or we can obey. Close. <laughs> do not separate joy and obedience. They are sisters that ought to always walk together. Rejoice in your God. And if you know that he is sovereign and that he sees above the tapestry and his plan is what is being unfolded, well, then you should obey him because he sees what you can't. His vision is perfect. Yours is not. And and the reason I draw attention to this is so often in our lives, especially when we sin, we begin to think we get the big picture and that this really is going to be better for us. That by pursuing this sin, that that will bring happiness. That will bring identity and pleasure and and value. And and it is good for me. Every time we sin, we believe we understand how the pieces go together better than God. That we're wiser than the all-wise. That we know more than the all-knowing. That we're better than the all-good. Kohel says, do not fall into that trap. Is God sovereign? Yes. How do you respond? Rejoice and obey Him. He knows what He's doing. He sees the picture. He sees the, the front and He sees the beginning. How does He see it? He determined it. And He determined everything in between. Not just joy and doing good. But look at verse 13. Everyone, and we've seen this theme again, eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. And again, the resurfacing of this motif. For it is God's gift to man. You believe in the sovereignty of God? Then you should see every meal as coming from his hand. The energy to go to work each day. That job. That car that just broke down. These are gifts in and from him. Enjoy them. Receive them as he gave them to you to be enjoyed, not to become idols in our lives. Enjoy your family, but don't push your family to the status of a God and say that my whole value is in them. No, they're a gift and I'm to be drawn into worship of God because he gave this gift. He gave it with a purpose to be enjoyed. So enjoy the gifts of God, they come to you out of the abundance and the determination of his sovereignty. Verse 14, he says, I perceive this. Basically, Solomon says, uh, here's what I know. 
I don't know how a lot of the puzzle pieces go together. I don't know how some of these knots and dark threads go together. But this I know. These strands are clear. These pieces are unquestionable. This is what I know. Everything that God does is permanent. Look at verse 14. It endures forever. Nothing can be added and nothing taken away. How firm is this sovereignty of God? Is this something that is, is strong can, but can be thwarted? I mean, is he, is he like a tide that pulls, but if we're strong enough, we can put it off? No, he's saying that everything that God does, well, it doesn't have an expiration date on it. It endures forever. And you can't add to it. You can't improve upon what God does. Everything he does, he does perfectly. And you can't take away from it. You don't get to diminish it and say, well, God, I know that's your standard, but let me bargain here for maybe not an A grade, but a C grade plan for life. It doesn't say any of that. God's sovereign will endures forever. It's perfect. You can't add to it. It's set. You can't take away from it. And what effect should that have on his people? End of verse 14. God has done it so that, this is a purpose statement, for this reason that people fear Him. If we can come into this place or come before His Word and hear the sovereignty of God and it not cause us to tremble, I would argue we don't have a foggy clue of what is meant by the sovereignty of God. If we draw near to this place and we even sing of His sovereignty and our hearts are indifferent, do we really get it? Do we really know what we're saying when we say, I'm not God, He is, and everything in life, He is the sovereign God over. The psalmist says that that should cause two things, worship and trembling. We should fear him. We're not talking about a, a carnal fear, the way children are afraid of the dark, a mystical, foundationless fear that it only has negative um, Fruit. It's not what he's saying. When, when the Bible speaks of a proper fear of God, what the sovereignty of God should produce in us when it produces a fear of God is, as one author put it, it is a commitment of the total being to trust, that's another word for faith, to trust and believe the living God. To put it more simply, I commit all that I am to all that He is. He is the only important one I pursue. Or as John Puritan, John Brown put it, to fear God is to love His smiles and cherish His smiles more than I cherish and love the smiles of this world. It's to fear His frowns or His displeasure more than I fear the displeasure or the frowns of Man, that because he is sovereign God, I, I, I love him more than I love anything else. And, and in a healthy, positive, good way, I do not want to displease him. 
And so my life comes into conformity with His Word and His will. The last verse, verse 15, a a, a difficult one, basically restating what has been said, that what has been will be, what is going to be has been. There's nothing new under the sun. We do live in a world of monotony, but look at that last phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. That is a hard one. There's different ways of translating it. The essence of it is this, that while God is sovereign, while the world churns in its monotonous churning, while it is a vapor and will be gone, God will bring the past, what has been driven away, he seeks it out. He will bring the past into judgment. Again, reaffirming that the accountability of man is not negated by the sovereignty of God. We will stand before this God. We will give an account. This is a theme that runs through Ecclesiastes. It's especially brought to prominence in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Remember this. You will stand before this sovereign God. Live your life in light of that, that the sovereign God does judge. Maybe you're still asking, well, are you sure that God can that God can use the dark threads? Are you sure about that? Can God bring good out of the dark threads and the dark knots of our life? My answer is absolutely he can. If you want to see it illustrated in scripture, I would recommend reading the story of Joseph what you meant for evil, God did for good. If you look at all of those events in the life of Joseph, you see uh, dark thread after dark thread after dark thread, difficult, devastating life occasions that evil men put on him, and yet behind it all, God was orchestrating it so that we can sit back and say, though we weren't Living it with Joseph, we can step back and say, Behold, beautiful in its time. How is it that God can use evil brothers to sell their brother into slavery to prepare the preservation of his people in Egypt and raise him out of a dungeon cell and promote him so that he can care for all of his father and his brothers and that God's people would be preserved beautiful in its time? But I would be remiss to stop at the lesser Joseph. When all we have to do to know, can God bring and does God bring good out of, out of the dark? I would point you to the greater Joseph. If you want to know, can God use these things, consider the cross of Jesus Christ. Never has there been a more evil sin carried out than the murder and the slaughter of the pure incarnate Son of God. It is the apex of the wickedness of man. Every slap, every spit, every insult, every whip lash, every strike to the face, every thorn in his brow, every nail that pierced him, every uh, spear that went into him, everything about that day was just, it screams unjust, evil wickedness. Let me ask you, is the cross of Jesus Christ beautiful? 
Yes, we sang it, or we, we read it today. At the proper time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the appointed time, if I could use the language of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a season appointed for everything, including the betrayal and slaughter of the Son of God himself. And that, if that evil can be brought for our good. It's the means by which we are saved. It is the greatest expression of justice and mercy and love and also wrath and righteousness and holiness and all of these things collide at the cross and we can say God brings good out of that. Well, friends, can he use and redeem the dark and difficult times of your life for your good, his glory, and marching out of his plan Absolutely, not only can he, he will. And so you and I can walk through this life, through the difficult times, and say, I don't have to understand. I don't have to. I know my God. I know that he's sovereign. I know that one day, though I don't see it now, it's beautiful in his time. There'll be times where we have to pray, oh God, forgive me. I don't see the beauty in this. Help me. I don't see the beauty In this struggle, help me. But at the end of the day, faith says, I leave it all to him. For he knows best, and he does righteously. Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? Let's pray. Our Father, our God, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Potter, We confess that you are sovereign and we are not. We confess everything you do is beautiful in its time, whether or not we see it as beautiful or not. So Lord, we pray and we ask you to give us faith to walk in this world that is vaporous and temporary and to follow you when we don't know how and why. but to heed the words of our older brother, Kohelet. We would rejoice our God is sovereign. That we would see our lives as gifts from you. And that we would entrust the dark threads of our life and say, take them, Lord, and weave what is beautiful for your glory, for your people's good, for the praise of your name. Oh God, may we walk in faith and not in doubting. We pray this in our Savior's great name. Amen.